1 Kings chapter 18, we begin in verse 41. I, I might just take a moment to set the context for you. The fire of God has fallen. Okay, the prophets of Baal have been defeated. And now it is right on the heels of that spectacular and supernatural miracle that we read in verse 41. And Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, Behold, there ariseth a little cloud out of the sea, like a man's hand. And he said, Go up, say unto Ahab, Prepare thy chariot, and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. And then if you would turn again to James chapter 5. And I'll read a section again, this time beginning in verse 11. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay, nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, and shall hide a multitude of sins." Amen. We know that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. 
calling your attention back to 1 Kings chapter 18, but I'm taking for my text that statement in uh, James chapter 5 and verse 16 that tells us the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The victory on Mount Carmel had been won, but the victory was not yet complete. The issue as to who was God and who wasn't had been determined when the fire fell in answer to Elijah's prayer and had consumed everything, the sacrifice, the stones, the wood, the dust around the altar, and the water that filled the trench around the altar. We have that described in verse 38. The people who had halted between two opinions were left now with no room to doubt that the Lord was God. And with what was undoubtedly a trembling fear on account of the great power of God, we read how they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom, we're told in the Psalms and in Proverbs. But it's only the beginning. And like I said, the victory on Mount Carmel had been won, but the victory was not yet complete. There was still the matter of the drought and the famine that resulted as a result of the drought. For three and a half years, there had been no rain. But you might recall from our last study that I pointed out that when Elijah was told by the Lord at the beginning of this chapter to show himself to Ahab, he was told at the same time by the Lord that the Lord would send rain. Look at verse 1 in chapter 18. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show thyself unto Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. That really is quite a telling statement by the Lord to Elijah, isn't it? It shows that the ultimate aim of God in this contest that would ensue between Elijah and the prophets of Baal was a gracious aim. There was a gracious plan in place here. We may rightly view the falling of the fire and the slaying of the prophets of Baal as purging acts of judgment, and in a sense they certainly were. But as Dr. Cairns used to remind us when he was still alive and minister at Faith Free down in Greenville, he used to tell us, judgment is never the final end. It is always a means to an end. That end being the advancement of the Lord's kingdom. And you know, when you look at the circumstances around us from that perspective, it certainly gives us the grace and the wisdom uh, to pray as Elijah did. Lord, if it will advance your cause, if it will advance your kingdom, if it will contribute to salvation, then by all means, Lord, send the judgment. That's basically how Elijah prayed. 
recognizing, as I say, the end being the advancement of Christ's kingdom. That was certainly the case with Job, wasn't it? That the Lord's purpose with Job in the end was a gracious purpose. The Lord's dealings with Job seemed harsh, and for a time, arguably, they were. We read from James 5 a moment ago, his take on Job. Listen again to the words of James 5 and verse 11, where we read in the middle of the verse, ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. From start to finish in that book that describes the prolonged and very deep sufferings of Job, we have to acknowledge that even though there was much in it that wasn't pleasant, yet at the end of the day, there was a gracious purpose behind it all. The phrase tender mercy that James uses in that verse is a single word in the Greek that occurs only there in James 5 and again in Luke 6 and verse 36, where Christ calls on his followers to be merciful as your father is also merciful. The word brings to my mind an Old Testament Hebrew word that is oftentimes translated by the word mercy. It's the Hebrew word chesed, which speaks to us of the loving kindness and the covenant faithfulness of the Lord. And as 1 Kings chapter 18 closes, we certainly find, don't we, a manifestation of the mercy and loving kindness of the Lord. Don't forget that the people of Israel had been guilty of idolatry, and their sanctioning of Baal worship, and all the immoral practices that would have gone along with that idolatry. Ahab and his wife Jezebel had led the nation into sin, and the nation was worthy of judgment. But now at the end of the chapter, we find the Lord sending the showers of blessing ending the drought and the famine that had plagued the land for three and a half years. What I want to draw your attention to this morning, however, is the activity of Elijah in between the time of the falling fire and the abundance of rain. In that gap, in that time gap, between the falling fire in the abundance of rain, we find a very particular activity that Elijah's engaged in. While Ahab rises at the word of the prophet to eat and to drink, we find Elijah doing something else. So we read in verse 42, So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. It's certainly obvious, I'd say, given the posture of Elijah and given his command to his servant to look toward the sea, that Elijah now was engaged in prayer. And if there's any doubt about that from the narrative in 1 Kings, James settles the matter for us once and for all in his epistle, 
Listen again to the words of James chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, where he writes, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. Rather interesting to note that in the narrative in 1 Kings 18, we don't have that actually recorded, but it definitely is the case. James was telling us, and we picked this up very early on in our studies of Elijah, that such would have been his jealousy for the Lord's honor, such would have been his knowledge of the covenant between God and the nation of Israel that he would have prayed based on that covenant, Lord, hold back the rain. You said, Lord, you have said through Moses that when the people forsake you, this will be among the things that happen, so Lord, do it. And the Lord answered prayer, and the rain was withheld. It rained not on the earth, James goes on to write, by the space of three years and six months. But then note here, verse 17 in James 5, and he, Elijah, prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Now remember that when the Lord called on Elijah to leave the widow of Zarephath, where Elijah dwelt many days, and go and show himself to Ahab, that God declared his intention to Elijah at that time that he would send the rain. And so you could say that Elijah went to Ahab, prevailed over the prophets of Baal the whole time with the promise of rain in view. We're able to learn a very needed lesson from Elijah in this portion of 1 Kings 18. And the lesson is simply this. The promises of God should compel us to pray. The promises of God should compel us to pray. And that's what I want to consider in the moments that remain this morning. You could entitle this message, Elijah a case study in persevering prayer. Elijah, a case study in persevering prayer. Let's note, first of all, Elijah's separation to prayer. In verse 41, we read Elijah's word to Ahab. Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is sound of abundance of rain. I pointed out in our last study that there are those commentators that take a critical view of Ahab here and suggest that Elijah could do no better than to call on Ahab to indulge his fleshly appetites because of the hardness of his heart toward anything that was spiritual. And while I have no doubt, and we'll see this, especially when we get into the next chapter, that Ahab's heart was hard, I don't believe that's why Elijah told him to rise up and eat and drink. Elijah, rather, is letting Ahab know that the time of scarcity would soon be over. There was the sound of abundance of rain. 
And once the rain came, the drought would end, the crops would grow, and the earth would bring forth its fruit again, as James tells us. So don't feel Ahab like you have to use your food so sparingly in your effort to stretch out the use of your food during this time of famine, because that time is coming to an end. The earth will bring forth fruit in its harvest. There is the sound of abundance of rain. Elijah, however, still had a pressing matter on his heart. And it was the matter of God's promise for that rain. So instead of engaging in what arguably could have been labeled a celebration of relief that he's prescribing to Ahab, that Ahab would be a part of, Elijah would do something else. He would separate himself to prayer. Note how this is stated in verse 42. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. How Christ-like Elijah appears in this instance. I'm reminded of the time in John chapter 4 where Christ met the woman at the well of Samaria. And while that woman went to the city to try to convince the inhabitants there that she had just met the Messiah, the disciples returned and brought back food. So we read in John 4, beginning in verse 31, In the meantime, while his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Oh, Christ had such a burden for his own mission, that it meant more to him than the eating of food. Christ's meat, in other words, the thing that fed Christ's soul above physical food, was the spiritual food of seeing his Father's will accomplished and the cause of redemption advanced. And with that same kind of zeal and concern, how often do we find Christ in the Gospels separating himself from everyone and everything in order to go up into a mountain to pray? We have the account in the Synoptic Gospels of Christ calling his disciples to himself and choosing twelve from among them. Did you know that before the calling of the twelve, Christ spent the whole previous night engaged in prayer? Only Luke tells us that in Luke 6 and verse 12. And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, whom also he named apostles. That gives you, doesn't it, a glimpse of the zeal that Christ had for every facet of his own earthly ministry, devoted to prayer. 
the whole night before. Could I suggest to you, therefore, dear believers in Christ, that devotion to prayer is not simply a matter for prophets or ministers or spiritual leaders. This is a task we're all called to, and it needs to be a matter of top priority in our Christian lives. So Christ tells us how to order our priorities in Matthew 6 and verse 33, where he says, Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So don't make such a priority over the material things of life. God knows what you need, but make your priority the advancement of his kingdom. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and if you will make Christ's cause your top priority or your meat, so to speak, then Christ will take care of your physical meat. And doesn't Christ's kingdom deserve to be ranked as a matter of top priority? His cause, you see, is the cause of life. We often think about this when we think in terms of the pro-life movement. We know what their stand is. We agree with their stand against the killing of unborn babies, pro-life, but in, in an even deeper and broader sense, Christ's cause is the cause of pro-life, eternal life. His cause is the cause of eternal life. His cause is the cause of salvation. His cause is the cause that addresses the deepest needs of lost sinners that need to be reconciled to God through him. So that should be your top priority in all that you do. And shouldn't we then, in connection with that priority, devote ourselves to prayer? Shouldn't we be pleading the covenant promises for our lost loved ones? Shouldn't we be pleading for gospel power to be manifested in such days as these when the powers of darkness seem to have their way in practically everything? At our last Presbytery prayer meeting, which we had this last Tuesday through Zoom, our brother Logan Elder, newly ordained minister to our Orlando church, called our attention to Daniel chapter 9, where you have the account of Daniel's prayer. I won't have you turn to that now, uh, but uh, I recommend it to you. One of the longest prayers you'll find in the Bible, and certainly a lot of instruction on the topic of prayer to be found there. And in the beginning of that ninth chapter, we're told what drove Daniel to prayer. It was his knowledge of the book of Jeremiah, where the Lord had said that the time of Israel's captivity would be for 70 years. 
By Daniel's calculations, those 70 years were up. It was time for the Lord to deliver his people out of captivity. So it was the promise of God's word that drove Daniel to prayer. We find another similar illustration of this in Ezekiel chapter 36, where the Lord gives the promise of increase. Verse 37 of that chapter, the Lord speaking, he says, I will increase them with men like a flock as the holy flock, as the flock of Jerusalem in her solemn feasts. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of men and they shall know that I am the Lord. That's a very prominent phrase in Ezekiel, by the way. They shall know that I am the Lord. Precious promises indeed, and promises that we can certainly view as having application to us in our day. But the thing I want you to see from that passage in Ezekiel is that verse 37 begins with these words, Thus saith the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them, I will increase them with men as a flock. I will yet for this be inquired of. In other words, the Lord's people will be seeking him in prayer, pleading with him to fulfill the promises that he's given. This is what the Lord wants. He wants us to seek him. And in our seeking, he wants us to plead his promises. So we have the separation of Elijah to prayer, while others may be celebrating, in a sense, relief from the famine. Elijah separates himself to something else, to seeking the Lord. May we emulate him in that practice. But then let's note next, secondly, Elijah's posture in prayer. Again, the words of verse 42 So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. Can you picture that? He's on his hands and on his knees. Basically, he's on his face before God. The mighty prophet who could stand boldly before Ahab and before the 450 prophets of Baal, and before the multitudes of Israel that were gathered together on Mount Carmel. Let's face it, when you think of the prophet Elijah, don't you think of one who is bold and courageous when it comes to taking his stand for the Lord? But now when he's separated from the crowd and from Ahab, and he's shut the door of his closet, so to speak, as he gets alone with God. Now the mighty prophet before men finds himself rightfully prostrate before God. And this is certainly appropriate, for it's the Lord alone who is altogether glorious, 
It's God on his throne. Christ, actually, in Isaiah 6, that causes the doorposts to shake and compels the angels to cover their faces as they call out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full with his glory. This is the posture of all those that gain awareness of the greatness and the majestic splendor of the God that they worship and serve. It's the case with Isaiah. It's the case with Daniel. It's the case with Ezekiel. It's the case with the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. And in our text this morning, we see that it's the case with Elijah also. He prostrates himself before God. I dare say that it's the lack of this kind of reverence in our day that provides the proof that God is little known today all things considered. With our cultural emphasis on being casual, we're very prone to pull God down to our level of not taking anything too seriously, unless perhaps it would be our worldly entertainment. Now I know that I have to be careful on this point, because it is very true that Christ condescends so far in his relationship with us. In John 15 and verse 15, Christ speaking, he says, Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Boy, that is something you should just pause and let Grip your hearts. Christ himself at the Father's right hand, the creator of the universe, the redeemer of his people, who calls us his friends. We're also called joint heirs with Christ in Ephesians. We're called sons of God by John in his epistle, by virtue of our adoption into the family of God. I acknowledge all these blessings, but at the same time realize that these connections to God through our Savior do not displace reverence or the fear of the Lord. Christ is still God. Christ still is seated on a throne at his Father's right hand. He has been exalted, and every knee will bow to him and confess that he is Lord of all. Hopefully, that has been done by many, even most, perhaps all, here this morning to the saving of your soul bowing before him and confessing him to be Lord of all? That confession will be made by all on Judgment Day. In the book of Revelation, where we're shown what worship looks like in heaven, we read of the four and twenty elders in chapter 4 that fall down before him 
that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Same prostration can be found in the very next chapter, Revelation chapter 5, verse 11. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. You see what I mean then, that this posture before God, it's a common phenomenon in Scripture, and it shows an awareness on our part of the greatness of the God we serve, his majestic splendor, and the contrast between that greatness and ourselves. This is part of what it means to be clothed in humility with our approach to God. A.W. Tozer once said, Christ can never be known without a sense of awe and fear accompanying the knowledge. No one who knows him intimately can ever be flippant in his presence. And while I'm not now suggesting necessarily that we have to imitate physically Elijah's posture. We certainly have to know in our hearts the attitude of reverence that Elijah illustrates. So we see that Elijah was separated under prayer. We've seen now Elijah's posture in prayer. Let's think for a moment thirdly, finally, on Elijah's watchfulness in prayer. Look at the words of verse 43. And Elijah said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again. Seven times. We see by this action of Elijah telling his servant to go up and look toward the sea, a sense of expectancy, don't we, on the part of Elijah. He's expecting God to answer his prayers. Why should he not expect God to answer his prayers when his prayers were based on the promise of rain? I wonder at times... What kind of expectancy do we have when we pray? 
I can't help but wonder if we pray with the expectancy that God won't answer our prayers. Who are we, after all? We reason to ourselves. Why should I expect an answer from God, especially when I'm mindful that oftentimes I fail to measure up to all that God's law requires? I'm no Elijah, and I'm no David, the author of many of the Psalms. My level of spirituality will never gain me answers to my prayers. So the devil whispers in our ears. And especially does this become the case when the answer is delayed. I'm so glad that Elijah sent his servant back to the top of Carmel to look toward the sea again and again and again and again. I don't know what kind of distance was being covered there, but I imagine that servant may have gotten tired of bringing the same message back. Nothing, I don't say it. Go again, go look again. Seven times. So there's a lesson here that not only pertains to our watchfulness for God's answer, but there's also the lesson here that accompanying that watchfulness, we should be persevering in our prayers. In Luke 18 and verse 1, we're told by Luke, and he, that is Christ, spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. The Lord certainly knew, didn't he, that we would have a tendency to faint, especially in the place of prayer. So he tells the parable of a widow that went before an unjust judge seeking to be avenged of her adversary. And in the story, the unjust judge doesn't want to bother with the widow. But because of the widow's persistence, he at last grants her request. And then Christ draws the application of that parable in verse 7 of Luke 18, where Christ says, And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them, And that's a phrase you ought to underline or highlight. Though he bear long with them, I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. And the thing to note from Christ's application of the parable is his stated purpose of bearing long with his followers. Shall not God avenge his own elect which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? Are we not taught here that it's not unusual for God to bear long with his people when they pray? He will bear long with them. And there may be times when he'll bear a real long time with them. I've heard of parents, perhaps you have too, that pray for years and years for their children to come to Christ. The children have gone the way of the world. They've gone to sow their wild oats in spite of their upbringing. Not an uncommon thing. But mom and dad, they continue to pray and pray and pray on. 
And God sees fit at times to wait for what seems like eternity, and still no answer comes. We may think along the way that we're seeing that cloud rise out of the sea the size of a man's hand, a providential indicator that God is at last going to answer, but how often do the clouds we see prove to be empty in the end? Now Christ continues in that parable of the unjust judge to explain why he bears long with his people in prayer. Verse 8 from Luke 18, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? There's your answer. The Lord would test your faith. He wants to see how serious you are about the things you're seeking him for. It is, after all, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man that avails much, and I believe that fervency can be found as much in the constancy of our praying as much as in the passion behind our praying. So let's draw the lesson from Elijah that we must be watchful in our praying and we must persevere in our praying. We're instructed in the book of Isaiah to give God no rest when it comes to praying. I have set watchmen upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, we read in Isaiah 62 and verse 6, which shall never hold their peace day nor night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence and give him no rest till he establish until he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. God wants us to be as that widow in the parable of the unjust judge. He wants you to bug him, in other words, if I could put it that way. He wants to be bothered with your prayers. Spurgeon points out in one of his sermons on prayer, that God wants you to make your case before him as to why he should answer your prayers. And that's not really a particularly difficult task. If your praying is based on his promises, and if your praying will bring glory to his name, as well as fulfillment to your joy. I love the words of Christ in John 16 and verse 24. He says, Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. Earlier in John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 13, Christ again speaking, And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Keep those verses in mind when you draft your case to take to God in prayer. Make your case by pleading for those things that will bring glory to the Father through the Son and that will fulfill your joy. And when you pray, follow the manner of praying that, pray, that, that Christ prescribes in the Sermon on the Mount in John 7 
beginning in verse 7, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Isn't there a sense in which that's what we find Elijah doing? When he sends his servant back, he's asking, he's seeking, he's knocking. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son asks bread, will give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? And I know I pointed this out in the past, that the tense of the verbs in Matthew 7 are present tense verbs, which means we're to keep on asking, we're to keep on seeking, we're to keep on knocking. Delays in answers are determined by an all-wise God who knows the perfect time and the perfect way to answer our prayers. So let's imitate Elijah in his praying by separating ourselves to prayer, by humbling ourselves before our God, and by being watchful and persevering in our prayers. And in this way, something will happen to you even during the waiting time. We have the account, don't we? Kind of an unusual way to close the chapter when we find Elijah girding up his loins and running before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel in verse 46, this does appear to be supernatural strength given to the prophet that would enable him to outrun Ahab's chariot or Ahab's horse, whatever it was. And we can certainly draw the spiritual application from that verse based on Isaiah 40 and verse 31, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings of eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Oh, all during the waiting time, which may be a lengthy time, there does come that benefit of the renewal of strength so that we can run, walk, not faint, and mount up with wings as eagles and, and, and gain the heavenly perspective, so to speak, uh, of God on all that's taking place. May we be among those that do indeed renew their strength and mount up with eagles' wings that we may advance the cause of Christ and see salvation wrought. Let's close then in prayer. O oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this service to a close, we thank you for the lessons that we can draw from thy word. We thank you for the example of Elijah. We thank thee that the promise you gave to him did not create in his heart a complacency toward the matter, 
but on the contrary, it stirred up a fervency in him to seek thee with all his heart. O Lord, may we be found doing the same, especially in days like these, when it does become so easy to faint. Help us instead to renew our strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.